Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Remembering the Misremembered. This is Monica. And this week I am talking about Al Jackson Jr. You might not know his name, but if you are a fan of the music of Stax Records or soul music in general, you have likely heard his work. He is the human timekeeper, the pulse of the Memphis sound, and a founding member of Booker T and the MGs, the Stax Records session group and house band. Not only was Al a great drummer, he was a songwriter and producer, and he was widely respected for his all-around musicianship. Al Jackson Jr. was born on Memphis, in Memphis, Tennessee on November 27, 1935. His father, Al Jackson Sr., was a band leader with his own 18-piece jazz and swing band. Al Jr. was a drumming prodigy who began playing in his father's band at the ripe old age of five. When he was 14, he started playing in the band of a trumpet player named Willie Mitchell, who started high records decades later. His father underestimated his ability to play with the Mitchell band, but Al Jr. proved immediately that he was more than equal to the, the task. At the same time that Al was playing with the Mitchell band, he also played for the band Branch Band. When Al started his band as an adult, he hired a musical prodigy named Booker T. Jones. In fact, it was Booker T. who recommended that Al be brought in to Stax Records as a drummer. Steve Cropper and Doug Dunn were also aware of Al's greatness. Satellite Records was a record label formed by siblings Jim Stewart and his sister Estelle Axton in 1957 in Memphis, Tennessee with the idea of starting a country music label, but they were situated in the heart of the black community with neighborhood kids flocking to their recording studio, which was housed in a former theater. It was the happiest of accidents. In 1961, they changed the company's name to Stax Records, using the first two letters of the family's name, Stewart, and the first two letters of Estelle's married name, Axton. Stax Records would go on to be co-owned by, by Albertus Isbell, a.k.a. Al Bell, nicknamed the Hype Meister, and became the preeminent soul record label in the 1960s. It had the nicknames Soulsville and The Sound of Money to distinguish it from its northern contemporary, Motown, known as Hitsville and The Sound of Young America. Al was reluctant to work for Stax at first because he wanted to be a salaried musician, and Stax didn't put their musicians on salary back then. But because Al Jackson Jr. was so great, and they were so determined to work with him, they met his terms, making him the first Stax musician to receive a weekly salary, while still continuing to do other session work for other labels like High Records. He continued taking club work too. Stax would go on to achieve 167 top 100 pop hits and 243 top 100 R&B hits over a 15-year time period. The company is second only to Motown in terms of commercial success and influence, but when it comes to raw, gritty, unapologetic, and unfiltered soul, they were second to none. Al Jackson went on to drum on most of these hits and many, many more. Booker T and the MGs, MGs being short for Memphis Group, was formed at Stax Records House Band in the early 1960s, originally consisting of Booker T. Jones on keyboards, Al Jackson Jr. on drums, of course, Steve Cropper on guitar, and Louis Steinberg on bass, who was replaced by Donald Duck Dunn. Stax Records worked with the Memphis Horns, too. They came to prominence after the house band The Marquis, who had a number of musicians attached to it, including future members of Booker T and the MGs, 
Booker T. Jones, Duck Dunn, and Steve Cropper. Isaac Hayes even occasionally played with the Marquise. Booker T. and the MGs were noted not only for being great individual musicians, but they were a racially integrated band at a time and in a place when multi-ethnic musical groups were unheard of. Stax Records was thought of as kind of a racial utopia with black and white people working harmoniously side by side. They were some of the most influential musicians of all time, and Al's backbeat was both incomparable and sought after. Only Motown musicians could compete. They played behind all the big Stax acts. Otis Redding, who referred to Al Jackson Jr. as the greatest drummer in the world, Rufus and Carla Thomas, Sam and Dave, Eddie Floyd, Albert King, and more. He also played on songs for other soul artists like Aretha Franklin, Gene Knight, Wilson Pickett, and Donnie Hathaway. Al wrote and played drums on the Al Green classics Let's Stay Together and I'm Still in Love With You. Elvis Presley, The Beatles, and Jerry Lee Lewis benefited from Al's rhythmic abilities as well. Booker T and the MGs were more than just a house band. They also released albums of their own, and they had hit songs like Green Onions, which they composed one day while fooling around in the studio, and it also had as its sequel, Mo Onions, and Time Is Tight. Some of their albums include Soul Dressing, Hip Hugger, and Soul Limbo, and they also played on stage with the Stax Acts. In the early 1970s, Booker T and the MGs began to go their separate ways as Stax Records began a slow descent. Racial tensions in the outside world started to affect the company and its artists within. This was something that started to really impact them following the 1968 assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis. Al explored interests outside of music at this time, investing in oil wells and purchasing a Memphis area gas station. He was about his coin for sure. He and Donald Duck Dunn stayed with Stax Records long after other people had moved on. But in 1975, Al was on the verge of reuniting with his former band, four years after the release of their album Melting Pot, but an unexpected tragedy would make the reunion impossible. Al was in the midst of domestic difficulties with his wife Barbara. On July 31, 1975, they got into an altercation at their Memphis home. Barbara Jackson was attempting to leave the home, and Al wanted to know where she was going. The argument continued in the driveway as Barbara cursed Al out. Al hit her, knocked her onto the hood of the car. He also grabbed Barbara by her hair and hit her some more before tossing her into a flower bed. She tried to escape him by going back into the house, and he followed her inside. Barbara grabbed her 22 caliber pistol, and Al grabbed his 38. She fired a warning shot before firing another shot that hit him superficially in the chest. He not only continued hitting Barbara, but Al managed to get the gun out of Barbara's hands and fired his gun into the floor to relieve tension, he would later claim. A neighbor called the police. When the police arrived, Al was sprawled out in the entrance to the den. They rushed him to the hospital. Barbara was brought in for questioning. About a month later, the judge dismissed this charge against Al Jackson, which was assault with intent to kill. The judge ruled that Al's actions towards Barbara led to her actions against him because she felt that her life was in danger. Al admitted to wanting to kill Barbara after she shot him, but he simply couldn't carry it out. The couple continued living under the same roof following this shooting incident and sleeping in separate bedrooms. Al and Barbara planned to divorce, and he had made plans to move into a new apartment the first week of October. He was to begin recording sessions with Booker T and the MGs in the first weeks of 1976. 
Al was scheduled to attend a meeting in Chicago on September 30th, 1975, but he pushed it back to the next day in order to attend the televised Ali Fraser fight, known as the Thriller in Manila, at the Memphis Coliseum, which he attended with a girlfriend, singer Eddie Floyd, and producer Terry Manning. He was supposed to take a 10 a.m. flight to Chicago the following morning, but he didn't live to make the flight. Just a little after midnight on October 1st, 1975, a police sergeant named J.S. Massey was driving home from work when he saw a crying and screaming Barbara Jackson outside the Jackson home with her arms tied behind her back. Inside the home, Sergeant Massey found Al Jackson Jr. once again on the floor in the den of the house. This time, Jackson was shot numerous times and he was dead. So the following is the story that Barbara told the police. She got home from her beauty parlor at around 11 p.m. When she entered her home, she was ambushed by a young black man, a robber. The robber shoved a pistol in Barbara's face and demanded that she give him money. Barbara swore to the robber that there was no money in the house. He tied her to a chair with an ironing cord and proceeded to ransack the home in search of valuables. They were interrupted by the doorbell ringing. The robber allowed Barbara to answer the door, but he warned her not to try anything because he would have the gun on her the whole time. So she answered the door. It was Al. She let him in. The robber began attacking Al, who insisted that there was no money in the house outside of what he had on him. So the robber retied Barbara in the den with her back to her husband. The robber continued issuing threats to Al. Al told the robber, we'll give you anything you want if you just don't hurt us. But he forced Al to lie face down on the floor before shooting him five times in the back, killing him. Then he fled into the night. Barbara managed to extricate herself from the chair, but her hands remained tied behind her back, so she couldn't call the police or anybody else. She ran outside yelling, my husband is in the house, he's been shot. At some point during the ordeal, Barbara had heard the robber address Al by name, indicating that they might have known each other or known of each other. Al was a local celebrity, so the robber may have recognized him based on that. The robber, who we can now refer to as the killer, made off with some jewelry and the contents of Al Jackson's pockets and was never caught, even though the Memphis Police Department promised Stacks Records and the black community of Memphis that they would capture him. His description was pretty unremarkable. Between 25 and 30, tall, sporting an afro, a mustache, and wearing dark clothes. That probably described half of Memphis. All the police could really say was that whoever killed him really wanted him dead, and that's a direct quote. Al Jackson Jr. was very tightly connected to Stax Records, a company that had been the second most successful in the music industry. But in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Stax had begun to fall on hard times, with the death in an airplane crash of its biggest artist, Otis Redding. Then Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis four months later, opening the company up to robberies, stick-ups, and Wild Wild West behaviors. In 1972, Stax Records heads, Jim Stewart and Al Bell, signed a distribution deal with CBS Records once their deal with Atlantic Records ended. The infamous Clive Davis was running CBS Records at the time, and CBS failed to live up to their end of the distribution deal. The whole situation ended up being a mess, with lawsuits flying and Clive Davis ended up doing jail time. Stax was accused of bank fraud and eventually lost everything in bankruptcy in 1975. In January of 1976, Stax was shut down by Union Planters Bank in foreclosure for a default on a $10.5 million loan. 
It is widely believed that the murder of Al Jackson Jr. was actually the final act that killed Stax Records beyond any possible hope of resuscitation. Numerous musicians associated with Stax sued the company for unpaid royalties. Isaac Hayes, an important ingredient in the building of Stax, sued the company twice. Rumor has it that Al Jackson was also planning to sue the firm, but Al was receiving royalties at the time of his death and he wasn't exactly struggling with his successful gas station and investments in oil wells. He got into other ventures because of the uncertainties of the music business. In that way, Al Jackson displayed wisdom. There's no statute of limitations on murder and the case of Al Jackson Jr. remains open. In April of 1976, Police Sergeant Jim Hester was coordinator of the case and he said that they were close to seeking indictments on the case. Captain Tommy Smith said that there were four suspects being investigated. But the indictments never came and it's unknown what became of these two police officers as they both seem to have vanished. Some people believe that Barbara was framed as a suspect by the true killer because it was known that Barbara had shot Al two months prior to his murder. A Memphis area newspaper had reported in May of 1976 that Barbara Jackson and her friend, blues singer Denise LaSalle, were the ones that the cops were looking to indict. There was a belief that the trigger man in the Al Jackson murder was a man that LaSalle had protected in another case. In January of 1976, Ora Denise Jones, the government name of Denise LaSalle, was indicted by a federal grand jury on charges of harboring a fugitive who was wanted on charges of armed uh, robbery in another state. This man was known by the names Nathaniel Dole Jr. and the alias Nate Johnson, and he was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. LaSalle cooperated with the FBI and was acquitted even as Doyle remained at large. A Memphis area police officer that Barbara Jackson had dated was suspected as the trigger man. His car had been seen in the Jackson driveway the night of the shooting. The anonymous officer went on to pass a lie detector test. It is believed that Barbara Jackson, Denise LaSalle, Nathaniel Doyle, and the police officer were at the house when Al Jackson came home unexpectedly. But who really knows? Doyle was killed in a shooting a year later. Booker T and the MGs reunited over the years with various drummers, but it was never the same. Somebody was quoted as saying, Stax had two of everything, but there was only one Al Jackson Jr. He was only 39 years old when he lost his life. His accomplishments as an integral part of soul music can never be taken away from him. The human timekeeper, the pulse of the Memphis sound, was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Booker T and the MGs, and he is in the Memphis Music Hall of Fame too. Anyway, that's the story of Al Jackson Jr. This is Monica. This has been Remembering the Misremembered. And I will see you soon.